Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 9. Please read with me the verses in bold. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, yet, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that for its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And yet, with the wicked, and with rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Advent and welcome uh, to uh, the third Sunday of our Advent teaching series uh, we're calling A Great Light. We're looking at some of the famous passages uh, from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament that foretold the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And this morning, uh, our reading is from Isaiah chapter 53 with a sermon titled, Who Were You Expecting? Name this movie. Spencer Tracy plays Matt Drayton, a successful San Francisco newspaper editor, and his wife, Christina, who owns an art gallery as played by Katherine Hepburn. This progressive couple learns that their 23-year-old daughter, Joanna, is returning from a 10-day whirlwind romance in Hawaii, engaged. She's bringing home her new fiancé, and he's an older man. He's 37 years old. But if they can get over the initial shock, the rest of his profile is everything they've dreamed of. He's a doctor and a philanthropist and will have to leave shortly after meeting them to continue his work with the World Health Organization in Geneva. How could he be all of those things? and not at all 
who they are expecting. If your answer to the question, name that movie, is 19... <laughs> Good guess. Any other guesses? <laughs> That's right. 1967 is the year. And the movie is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier as Joanna's black fiancé, the doctor, John Prentice. And in that moment, in that cultural moment, no matter how enlightened this, uh, this uh, couple thought that they were, when it really came down to it, doctor, philanthropist, and black just didn't fit in the same expectations, the same sentence. How could it? One of the themes of Jesus Christ's life and ministry is that while he was very clear about who he was and even fit every description that was foretold about him and what he came to do, again and again from the very beginning, people could not rectify who they saw before them and what they saw taking place with the expectations that they had for a Messiah with the expectations that they have for what salvation from God would look like. No matter how studied or prepared people thought that they were, suffering and Savior just didn't fit together in their minds. They were an exiled people praying for rescue and praying for vindication. Messianic king and servant just didn't belong together when they thought about who God would send to save them. How could it? How could these be the same person? This morning on the third Sunday of Advent, the season of expectation and anticipation of the coming of Christ, the sermon is, is entitled, Who Were You Expecting? Or the, the, the subtitle, what Isaiah was saying when no one was listening. Isaiah 53, in two parts, a suffering savior and a servant king. A suffering savior. John the Baptist in the New Testament sends his followers to inquire whether they should expect someone different because Jesus isn't behaving like the one who would save Israel from Roman oppression. Are you the king of the Jews? Pontius Pilate asks a battered and bruised Jesus. The implication, of course, is you don't look like anyone who could liberate his people from Rome. And there's probably no clearer moment in the New Testament that Jesus was not fulfilling people's expectations than when he's mocked on the cross by Jewish leaders who call out and they say, if you're the son of God, if he is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. And then we'll believe in him. The implication is, that's the kind of deliverer that we would follow. The kind that would come down off the cross. The kind of hero that we're expecting. Messiahs, heroes, deliverers. They are dominant, right? They're forceful. They're attractive people. 
who by their personal magnetism draw people into their orbit and to themselves, convincing them and employing them in some heroic part of the work that they have come to do themselves, the mission that they're leading. People flock to them. It's still what we look for in leaders. It's still what we look for in pastors. We look for winners. But what Pilate saw was laughable. And what the Jewish leaders encountered repulsed them. This was not what they expected when Isaiah said that the mighty arm of God, God's strength that he would send to save the Jews, what they saw was a loser hanging on a cross. Losers cannot deliver losers, right? Winners don't suffer, do they? In verse 3 of our passage this morning, Isaiah's words are translated for us, he was despised and rejected by men. But the original Hebrew is a little bit less provocative and emotive. It means to consider something or someone unworthy of attention. It's, a, it's actually describing more like an immediate dismissal, an obvious disqualification. This obviously is not the person that we're looking for. Which makes Isaiah 53... Such an ironic passage, both because of its description of the Messiah, which was uh, so obviously overlooked by so many who encountered Jesus in the moments of his suffering, and because these words so accurately explain Christ's suffering that it seems impossible that they could have been written hundreds of years before it took place. A suffering Savior described. Verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He does not burst onto the scene or dominate the landscape like a mighty oak, but he appears like a sprout, one of those little unwanted shoots that springs up by the bottom of the tree trunk that my dad used to call a sucker right before he breaks them off. Get rid of this sucker. <laughs> he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Whether uh, your imagined hero appears in your mind in hospital scrubs or in military fatigues or as a caped crusader, Isaiah's hero will look nothing like the picture in your mind. In fact, he may actually look like the opposite of what you hoped for a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a man of sickness and pain, which most of us, if we're honest, find uncomfortable. We avoid sickness, and, and those who are sick, unless we're related to them, unless we are sort of obligated to care for them, we feel like we ought to help people who are suffering and sick, uh, since we are most often helpless to help people alleviating pain, we avoid them. We turn our face away. We find something else important to do. We look the other way. And this is how Isaiah describes the Savior as one from whom men hide their faces. And yet, he explains, a suffering Savior. Isaiah calls the Messiah the mighty arm of the Lord uh, throughout 
his foretelling of the coming Messiah, the embodiment of God's power coming to save his people. But in this passage, when his Messiah appears to save and deliver his people, he's met with shock and distaste and dismissal and avoidance. Uh, People will be looking for someone else. They're looking for someone else because the Savior God sends won't suffer. Why would the Savior God sends suffer? Why is this a necessary part of God's plan to save his people? Our underlying assumption, which I think Isaiah lays bare, is that suffering is a disqualifier. Suffering is only to be avoided, and therefore people who suffer are also to be avoided. They're losers. They're losing. But in the next uh, stanza, uh, confronting the underlying assumption that we have that if someone's suffering, they somehow deserve what's happening to them, the very next stanza of the prophet's poem reports that the suffering of this servant are not his own fault. It says, surely his He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We discover from the prophet that the reason he is suffering and we are not is not because we have somehow merited a better fortune than he, but in fact that he is suffering the result of our sin. And he is not suffering simply because there's suffering in the world, that stuff is tough, but he suffers in the place of his people, receiving the consequences their sin deserved. He suffers for them. And because of that, they do not need to experience the full results of their sin. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. I think it's not that we didn't recognize the Savior because we didn't anticipate his appearance necessarily. I think people don't recognize the Savior because we don't understand what his mission will require. His suffering is not an unforeseen detail of his mission, a happenstance along the way. It's actually the mission itself. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I have a teacher friend. He's a high school teacher. And in his classroom, there's a sign that says, you are free to choose whatever you want, but you are not free from the consequences of your choices. We have all experienced immediate or even lasting consequences as a result of our own choices and of our own sin. The passage this morning says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the difficulties and the ramifications, the consequences of our decisions are only a shadow reminder. They're a a temporal experience of the spiritual consequences of sin. Alienation from God. Isaiah writes to a people uh, in his moment as he writes, the people of Israel are physically exiled from the promised land. They've been carried away from uh, the land and the relationship with God that God had promised as a consequence of their disobedience to God. This too was intended to be a tangible reminder of what sin does. 
The spiritual effect of sin is that it removes us from a relationship with God. This is what the Old Testament sacrificial system was all about, communicating what would be necessary for sinful humans to have a relationship with a holy God. Sacrificing a sheep did not do away with the immediate consequences of sinful behavior. In the Old Testament as there is today, conflict still needed resolving. Relationships still needed mending. Sickness needed healing. But the sacrifice addressed the, the spiritual effects of sin. The idea that we forfeit our lives when we disobey the giver of life. That when we reject God, we owe him the life that he gave us. And so sacrificing a sheep was always a substitute, a perfect lamb that didn't deserve to die. Sacrifice is a sign that the debt we owe God would have to be repaid by someone if we were ever to be forgiven, if we were ever to be restored into a relationship with God. And so from the beginning, it was clear that a, a lamb couldn't really die in a human's place. They had to keep rehearsing this ceremony but a perfect human. Only someone who didn't have a sin debt of their own could be a substitute. And this is what John the Baptist is alluding to the first time he sees Jesus. When Jesus comes on the scene in John 1.29, John the Baptist says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's what Isaiah is saying in the clearest way he knows how when he says in Isaiah 53, like a lamb is, is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A very clear explanation as far as Isaiah is capable of saying, this is the mission of the Messiah, to suffer in our place. A suffering savior is not a contradiction, but a servant king. Name that movie. Mr. John Prentice Sr. and his wife Mary receive wonderful news that their 37-year-old son, a widower long buried in his work, has once again found love. He's engaged. Her name is Joanna, and she sounds lovely. They've only spoken to her on the phone when she invited them to help her surprise their son by coming to dinner at her parents' home to celebrate the engagement. They can hardly wait to meet another black family with an upwardly mobile daughter breaking through the glass ceiling of the white upper class. What could go wrong? <laughs> Any guesses? 1967's Oscar-winning movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Featuring Katherine Houghton as Joanna, Dr. John Prentice's white fiance. It's not a story about just one set of unmet expectations. And neither is the story of the coming Messiah. In the Gospel of Matthew, in his nativity, in his nativity account, the wise men from the east famously arrive at a palace in Jerusalem rather than in Bethlehem because they expect that the one that they come to see is a king who would sit on David's throne, Isaiah said, and of the increase of his government in peace, there'll be no end. But Jesus wasn't there. 
He started his life in the servants' quarters of a backcountry inn out with the animals, and he ended his earthly ministry wrapped in a towel, washing his disciples' feet. In the rush to recognize the Messianic king when he arrives, many in Jesus' day overlooked Isaiah 53. They actually overlooked four different passages in the book of Isaiah that are similar. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50 are some of the richest Messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament, but they're not known as the hems for a king and conquering hero. They're famously known as the four servant songs of Isaiah. The one we read this morning actually begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, where it says, Behold, my servant will accomplish his purpose. He'll be high and lifted up and very exalted. Now, many have read these passages in Isaiah and said, Yes, the servant of God, yes. It's a good title for a messianic king. Somebody who will come and conquer and vindicate God's people in battle. And similarly, throughout history, many people have claimed similar titles as justification for their claim to power. I'm God's servant. Follow me. Serve me. Submit to me because I'm God's servant. But you can't read very much of Isaiah's servant songs, and you certainly can't read very much of the accounts of Jesus' life without realizing that his design was not to claim dominance over other people because he was God's servant, but to actually serve other people. Particularly to serve those who no one else was serving. He was a servant from God. The epics and the myths and the histories of every cultural of every culture throughout history glorify the magnificent and the powerful. It was true in Isaiah's time in the Old Testament. It was true in the New Testament time when Jesus walked. It's true today. But Isaiah wrote about a meek and humble servant. But it's because of his meekness and his intentionality in remaining little and unknown, because of Jesus' commitment to serving rather than being served, that the Son of God, the Word of God incarnate, was able to reveal himself to real and regular people, forgotten and overlooked people. It was, it was how the love of God was able to appear incarnate with the people that needed and knew they needed God the most. And it's also a way that he was, if you look at, the, at, the, if you look at history from 30,000 feet, it's the way that he was able to accomplish this spectacular feat of our forgiveness and our salvation that nobody else could do. And you might say that he did it under the radar and outside of town while nobody was looking. It was interesting to me this week to hear people talk about the idea that a humble hero was an entirely alien concept in any culture until the New Testament, until Jesus introduced himself to the world. Even Judaism didn't know what to make of the servant songs of Isaiah until after Jesus' death and resurrection gave them a context to look back and understand what Isaiah was saying about how Messiah would suffer to be their salvation. 
In his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, Tom Holland argues that there is no record, no such thing as treating ordinary people as having worth or value in history until the New Testament. What Jesus did, not only by choosing tax collectors and fishermen and women as his followers, but by washing their feet, was revolutionary. He is the original servant leader, the primary source for most of what we understand today about basic human rights, about the dignity of every person, that every person is entitled to uh, value whether they are wonderful and magnificent or they are one from whom men hide their faces. In the Gospel of John's account of the night Jesus washed his disciples' feet. The apostle Peter says what everyone else is thinking. No way, Jesus. You don't wash my feet. I wash your feet. You're the king. You shall never wash my feet, John 13, 8 says. Peter was reacting and responding as he was witnessing the invention of servant leadership. Peter's culture prized honor and power, and Jesus, his teacher, his leader, his mentor, the one he hoped was the Messiah, Jesus was washing feet. It was a complete reversal of the honor and shame outlook of the ancient world. But Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you'll understand. In a way, Jesus on his knees like a servant is a preparation for his disciples for what they're going to see the very next day when Jesus will hang on a cross and according to Isaiah, bear the sins of the world. Carry our burden for us. Serve us by atoning for our sin. But this isn't just theology. Jesus follows up in that passage with these words, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus' servanthood, his foot washing isn't just a sign of what Jesus is going to do on the cross, but it's also a very clear, simple example to follow. Christians haven't always done this right. Sometimes we pursue our own honor and our own protection and our own power. We haven't gotten on our knees and served the world. And when we say the world, it's not just our own club, not just people like us, but the world. Even a world that sometimes clearly doesn't like Jesus or the church. Remember, if you read this whole passage in John chapter 13, John makes the point of telling us that Judas, Jesus' betrayer, was there in the room. And that knowing full well what Judas was about to do, Jesus washed his feet too. If Advent is about anything, it's most certainly a call to remember that the way that the world will encounter Jesus today is the same way that people encountered Jesus when he appeared 2,000 years ago. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him. No beauty that we should 
desire him. Contrary to some of our deepest instincts or our knee-jerk responses, uh, our witness to the world will not be, uh, the, the, the world will not be changed because of Christian power moves or influence. It will be changed by suffering and by service. 